when you first got to the varsity football team at Lafayette in Brooklyn, who was the first person to kick your butt and kind of welcome you to a varsity level of competition? Man, I tell you, I can tell you a story about that because when, when I got the varsity and I wanted to figure out who was the best because you always yeah. want to play. So you always yeah. want to figure out who's the best on the defense that you could. So if I could block that guy, I felt like I could block anybody. And that was always my been my mentality. Mm-hmm. And I was a center at the time and I was trying to prove, prove myself. And um, so we had this linebacker, Mike Linebacker. His name was Ed Lothian. And Ed was, he was special. I mean, he was about mm-hmm. 6'1", 225, 230. Mm-hmm. I mean, my freshman year, I watched him play and do some incredible things. So when I'm trying to make my bones on varsity, I'm like, yeah. okay, if I can block Ed, then I know I belong. And I tell you, I'll never forget it. Every time I hit Ed, you came off the double team or you went to the second level and you and you <laughs> went in and you hit and made contact. I'll never forget. I, I always walked away and I always told all my boys, I said, when you hit Ed, does it feel like your brain is moving? Because I, I swear to you, I just literally felt every time I hit that guy, it was like a thud and you just felt your whole body. And that's when I knew I had to get in the weight room. But I, I felt like my whole brain moved like from one side to the other. And every time I made contact, I always felt that. And we used to always talk about it and kid about it. I'm like, you know, this guy is 6'1", 230. Yeah. He was looking at schools like Miami and everybody was talking about him. I'm like, man, I'm telling you, something isn't right. But it, it, the funny thing is later on in life, when they started talking about concussions and yeah. talking, talking about yeah. concussions and, and, yeah. and car crashes and things of that nature, immediately triggered to me, oh man, Every time I hit Ed Lothian, I might have gave myself a little concussion. <laughs> Never thought about it at the time. Yep. I just I thought it was like a, a badge of honor. I was like, yep. man, I'm going to get the best guy. I just had to get in the weight room and work harder so I could make contact better. You know what I mean? So this is a funny thing when I look back on it because that's when I knew what I had to do to stay at that level. It always feel like I need one more boy and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head, lost my mind, insuring them. I'm just fine. I'm good enough, but I need one more boy and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head, lost my mind, insuring them. I'm just fine. I'm good enough, but I need one more boy and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head. Lost my mind, insuring them, I'm just fine, I'm good enough But you be told I need some therapy, initially ain't do it voluntarily, but now I got a legacy Alright, welcome back to another brand new episode of the Team Player Podcast This is episode number 58, this is one I've been wanting to do for a long time Me and this guy had some serious battles one-on-one when I was a defensive coordinator, he was an offensive coordinator But even though we had those great battles on the football field, this is a guy that I've always gravitated towards off the field I would always just run into a man. We'd have some good conversations. So I've, I've been such a fan of his career. And now he really had a, a breakout season this year of the size Springs Panthers, but it is my pleasure and honor to welcome my good friend and the head football coach of the size Springs Panthers. OG Fagan. Welcome to the show. Welcome. I thank you. Thank you for having me coach. Kobo. I, I never, I never forget some of those battles, man. There was, there was some good times when you were at Ridgepoint. <laughs> absolutely man and if, if you're a fan of the show and you've been listening man please take the take five seconds whatever you're listening give us that five-star rating that helps us move up the charts uh we've got 
49 on Spotify right now. So next person, you're going to be number 50. So get us that 50th uh, rating. Give us a review. If you write out a written review, I read it on the show. You can hit the follow button to subscribe and get a new episode in your queue every single Sunday. We'd be honored if the Team Player Podcast made it in your rotation. I'm your host, James Kovaleski. You can follow me on Twitter at Coach underscore Kovo. That's Coach underscore K-O-V-O. And Coach, man, you telling that story like, for us back in the day, I'm so glad that the science has, has gone forward and it's, the game is safer now. But we used this call, you know, just seeing stars or get your bell rung. It was something, like you said, we just kept going. <laughs> and, uh, we yeah. didn't think about it. <laughs> man. We did not think about it at all, man. To me, it was a badge of honor. I felt like, oh, man. Sure. You know, I thought, I like I said, I thought I had to get in the weight room and work harder. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, you know, looking at your early life, coach, and you're, you know, most of our, most of our guests are, are native Texans. You, you've been in Texas a long time, but you have an interesting background. You're from Brooklyn. You grew up in Brooklyn, New York. You played yeah. at Lafayette High School. Coach, I looked this up this morning just to familiarize myself where you're at. You are like right there in the heart yeah, of all man. the bustle and bustle. It's funny because um, I grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn, and my mom, she was a very, so she was very adamant about me and my friends not going to school together, which was a big thing for her. She felt like we were always together yeah. in the neighborhood. We grew up together. We were, you know, I'm originally from Jamaica, right? So I came okay. to the United States yeah. when I was seven years old. Um, and I grew up in Brooklyn from that time on. I fell in love with football, always wanted to play, but she never would uh, let me play until I got to high school. She made me wait until I got to high school to play. And um, yep. so when it came to choosing schools, my mom was like, well, you're not going to the school that's closest to us. And in New York City at the time, you get to pick what high school you went to. You apply to like eight high schools. You put your top eight choices and then they match you. And then you get back this report every spring about what high school you, you, you were looking at. So when we were in middle school, my friends and I, we were all looking at the high schools who had the best football programs, right? Mm -hmm. And the year before I got there, a couple of years before I got there, Lafayette was one of the final four teams in the city championship playoffs. And so they were on the list. So I put them on, not knowing what I was doing, not knowing what I was getting myself into. And I just knew that it was one of those places that had had a football program, had a good engineering program. And I I, I applied and I got accepted. And my life changed after that. So, but the, but like I was saying before, my mom, she felt that me and my friends are always going to school, always playing together. Always, if we went to school together, it was just going to be more distraction. I wasn't going to get much done. So she had in her mind that I had to go all over Brooklyn to go to school. So when I was in elementary school, I was going about 30 minutes away from my friends to go to school. Yeah. I was going about 45 minutes on the bus. Now this is this is different growing up in New York City because you use public transportation. They gave yeah. you like a bus pass, right? Yeah. So you have this bus pass or train pass, and like when you go to school every day, you get up, you go to the bus stop or you go to the train stop, use your pass, get on the bus, and you go to school. And on the bus, you have all people from all types of from everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Travel, you commuted, and then you commute to school, and then you commute back home. So it was different, a different experience, man. I, it, you grow up kind of fast when you when you start moving around like that. It's so cool, man. I'm looking at this map, and I mean, you're you're really close to the. You're right there, like Brighton Beach, Manhattan Beach. I mean, you're you're near the water. Like, could you look into the bay and see the Statue of Liberty? I mean, <laughs> no, oh, actually, okay. they, Brooklyn is so big because because the buildings, okay? sky, the different. Because right next to Lafayette High School was like this project called uh, Marlboro Projects, okay. and it was it was pretty cool. 
Um, but it was in Bensonhurst, all right? So, like, you know, New York is a melting pot. So, like, yep. different parts of the city, you had different cultural backgrounds. In Bensonhurst, you find mostly Italians. Um, then you had Coney Island, where you, which is right next door. Coney Island, yeah. Right there. I see <laughs> it. Know? I see it on the map. <laughs> and then um, where I came from in, in Brook, in Flatbush, usually you had your, your West Indian transplants. Most yep. people who... Uh, who uh, who uh, trans, who moved from the West Indies over to the United States and settled in New York. Flatbush was one of the areas where they settled. I'm in. seeing Little Haiti on the map here. That's the Flatbush. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, you had that. It's, it's so many different things. There's so many different cultural backgrounds you grow yeah. up with in New York City. It's crazy. You get Let me ask you that, Coach, because I mean, I'm, I'm, my mom's Japanese. I was, a, I was born in Japan. So like you, I, I was not born in the United States. So you and me would never be president. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I understand having an immigrant mother. She also did not want me to play football, and I had to beg and beg and beg and beg. So can you describe what that's like? You know, uh, maybe sometimes, maybe when you come from another country, you don't understand the fo football. You know, football can be kind of foreign, like it was for my mom, yeah. maybe for your mom a little bit. So um, I'm just curious. Like, do you, and, and now you're a coach, and you may have some – I know when I was at Aldi, and a lot of my players, you know, immigrated from other countries. So I'm curious, like, do you still see that? Do you see maybe – hesitation sometimes for like moms like your mom or my mom to let their kids play football so i can tell you that it's probably coming to play with some of the um, student athletes i've met from uh, african backgrounds mm. uh, whose parents who came from africa or nigeria mm -hmm. i can think of a couple of kids where you know sitting out with those parents and having a conversation and knowing exactly what's important to them because in her mind the most biggest the most important thing to her and most parents who come from a uh, uh, international background is, is academics, right? Sure. And yep. Yep. so the big the big thing to them is what does this have to do with academics? And they can't understand the connection. They don't yes. they don't understand how athletics could positively impact a kid academically, right? So that's one of the biggest things for her was understanding, okay, how is this gonna help you, you know, become a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, whatever it is in her mind, she thought my career path should be. And she couldn't see that and she couldn't understand it. And then once I began playing and she allowed me to play organized football in high school, then it started opening doors. And academically, you know, between football and my academic resume, it opened up some doors and avenues for me to get move on to the next level and get get an education that probably wouldn't I probably wouldn't have been afforded to me if I didn't play. Yeah. So and that's one of the things I talked to parents about. I said, you know, um, your son's a straight A student, but you know what? If he's if he can play this game the right way and and maintain that academic standard, that's gonna open the doors for him academically as well, you know, because I've had players who've gone on to Ivy League school because of football, you know, and academic resume put together. So it's like they understand that. You know what I mean? That's one thing they understand is when you start talking, how can this benefit my child academically? That's when those immigrant parents start to really connect and saying, okay. Okay, coach, how are we going to work together to make this happen? You know what I mean? So that was something for my mom where I felt like she had to connect how this sport or playing sports in general was going to help my son academically or move on to the next level. You know, for us, you know, I grew up in Texas, but I, I remember in the field house that Cameron song, Welcome to New York City, will be playing in the summertime. <laughs> and so that's, <laughs> that's probably the closest I, you know, I've been to New York City. I think I went one time with my parents but i was very young so i don't really remember but just for us like man new, new york just seems like such a vibe man so can you like just describe to us you know you mentioned all the diversity and the melting pot but like 
all in in the, the the big public transportation, all that kind of stuff. But like, what was it like growing up in 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 a big city like that? So, I, I guess you know when I look at my kids right now, and, and I think about my oldest, he's nine, and you know he, I take him to school, I take him to work. I mean, I mean, I, I basically I do everything with him, right? And I'm yeah. thinking about he's in the fourth grade, going to fifth grade, and I'm thinking back to when I was like second, third grade when I was commuting myself without a parent <laughs> okay <laughs> in public like that's the thing like you, when you when you grow up in New York City you grow up you mature faster in certain right, areas because right, you get right. challenged in in different aspects right so you think about a 9 10 11 year old 12 year old kid you know catching the train or the bus yep, and yep. going to school and coming home from school having their own keys and you know um, it's just so many different things where I felt like I, I I had to mature faster, you know. And then you get you get ex- exposed to I mean a lot, <laughs> and I think about it, you get exposed to a lot faster, especially being out in the world and seeing things that you probably would never see when you're kind of sheltered by your parents and protected at all times. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's definitely one of those experiences where you kind of experience life a little bit faster, and you mature a little bit faster, and you learn how to interact with different people you know what i mean because yeah. i mean i just I, I i tell i tell people all the time my quarterback is my quarterback in high school um his name was gazillo and, and, and anthony gazillo and anthony okay so you're thinking about this any, anything you think about a stereotypical italian that was anthony yeah, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> so here i am you know black kid from brooklyn grew right. up in flatbush and anthony and the rest of us we all and just a bunch of us all the different cultures come together yeah, on one yep. team, right? And so there you have these projects. And you ever watch those movies and you see your projects and what's going on in projects and how many, you know, crime and different things. So our starting quarterback, Anthony Gazillo, he's this Italian dude, and he's walking and chilling out in the projects with all the people that you quote unquote might think were these tough guys or right, right. you know, they got the got what type of stereotype you might think of them. And but he, because he was starting quarterback at Lafayette, he's he had a black girlfriend and he's yeah, chilling yeah. in the projects. It's just yeah. things that you wouldn't think was possible. You know what I mean? Yeah, so man. It just, culturally, just it, it broke down so many uh, barriers. This is why I love sports. And this is why I do this podcast. I think we should not back off from sports. Like I, I am all for promoting everything of coaching and sports because of the stories like that, man. Um, these coaches make a difference. You know, I always share with my listeners, I don't think I've ever told you this, but like I grew up in kind of a dysfunctional home with like some domestic abuse and stuff. And so I I, I really needed the coaching. I wanted to get the hell out of my house. I was that kid. I'm up late at night while my parents are fighting downstairs. I'm just hoping like, God, please, God, let me just fall asleep so I can get up in the morning, and get the hell out of here and get to my get to where Coach Kitterman is at. And you may know Coach Kitterman. He's the OCSI Falls. That, that was my coach. Okay. That, was my yes. high school, that was my high school offensive line coach of Fort Ben Austin. And he he was my he was my Superman. You know what I mean? Like I just looked up to him. He made me feel good about myself. And so that's what I needed. I was one of those kids in a tough situation. If I didn't have football, I don't know what would have become of me if all the stress is happening at home. And so can you talk about the beauty of athletics just a little bit? Cause you, you mentioned of your brothers on the team that, you know, in the rest of the world, maybe these people wouldn't be caught dead together or thought that we could be friends like that. But because we played together on that team, we built that brotherhood. Can you just talk about the power of it? And you, you've lived it. Now you're doing I mean, it as a coach. It, it's, it's, it's special because, you know, it, it break like all the misconceptions that we have about one another, all the, 
the stereotypes that we that, that the world likes to put out and yeah. and uphold us to. I mean, sports and being a part of a team it breaks all those barriers, man. I mean, it, it's funny, but before I even touch on that, when you talk about your coaches, yeah, I think that's where football became important for me because you know I'm 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 from a single parent home. Yeah. Um, my mom she raised me and my brother, so I didn't have a father figure in the house, yeah. right? So. When I got to high school, my coaches were the first ones to teach me what yes. it was like yes. to be a man. You know what I mean? You watch them, you watch how they moved, you watch how they how, how they carried themselves, the thing that, that the life lessons that you learn from the sport. I mean, it, it was incredible. The impact they had in, in, in directing us and putting and pushing us in the in the right direction. So that's one of the reasons why I I, I fell in love with the sport yep. and why I'm coaching today is because the impact my coach had on me in high school and the difference he made for me and those kids that I grew up with, you know what I mean? But the, just the togetherness, the bond, the brotherhood that you, you build and you form with one another is, is, is nothing like it. You know what I mean? Because again, you, you, you grow up in a society where they like to tell you what, what, what a person's supposed to be like. Right. Right. Like before I went to Lafayette, I had this stereotypical idea of what an Italian person was. Right. You right. know what I mean? But then now we're we're hanging out at each other's houses, you yeah. know, eating each other's food, you yeah, know, yeah. My, what my mom make, what 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 their mom or family might make, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just it just it, it, it just became a, a a brotherhood completely. And it was no color. You didn't look at anybody and say, hey, he's white. You didn't look yeah. at anything. But that's yeah. that's that's my brother. That's my quarterback. You know what I yeah, mean? Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's my linebacker. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. That's you know, when you, when you went home and you hung out in your neighborhood, people saw you walking with them. It was like, oh yeah, they go, you know, and they, yeah. they treat them just the same because they know they're with you. <laughs> you know Love what I mean? So, yep. so it, it's just incredible, man, because I I would never had thought I would be walking around Bensonhurst at a time, at that time in the nineties, because I'm like, you had all these scary stories of guys getting jumped or whatever, things of yeah. that nature. So you know, having those relationships really open doors and, and allowed you to look and see people differently through different lenses. One more question about, I have to ask you this, man, growing up Brooklyn in the nineties, one of my favorite all time athletes of all time is from Brooklyn. Iron Mike Tyson. Oh, I, I imagine for you guys, he was a, a God. I mean, what, what, what did you get caught up in, in the frenzy of Mike Tyson? And, so and being from the- I, I got something even scarier for you about that. Okay. My wife actually worked for Mike. No way. And was like close with his his sister. And actually, oh my went, God. I mean, I'm talking to work to the point where we traveled with him to Vegas and did different things like in yeah. his management company. My wife was actually involved with Mike Tyson. It's crazy that you That's brought that awesome. name. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was Superman. I mean, the boxing yeah. ring, yeah. you yeah. know, to me, that's the last great heavyweight, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hear you, man. <laughs> God, so, those, yeah. those were the days, man, of Mike Tyson and playing the punch out video game of it. Good times. But after after growing, you know, finishing at Lafayette, uh, you're able to continue your college football career. You go you go upstate. You go two hours or two and a half yes. hours straight north up to Albany. That's actually the capital of New York. I think a lot of people don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> but, so it's, it's so it's crazy. So, um, you know, I was I was coming out of high school. I was a small I, I was small. I, I didn't measure up to go to the Penn States and all those schools. Right. I was a little bit undersized. So I had a bunch of Division One, One AA, Division Two schools looking at me. And it was funny because I grew up in Brooklyn and Lafayette was across the street from the project. So we started going on these college visits, right? And it's funny because some of these small colleges, some of these schools were located like 
if you went to some place in Massachusetts, there's like the school that's like right in the middle of the projects, right? Yeah. Or so I'm scratching my head and I said to myself, I was like, man, how am I going to leave Brooklyn and go to a place that's right in the middle of the projects? Like, I can't do that. Like, yeah. I might as well just stay home. <laughs> so, so I started looking at some schools and I, and I narrowed down to a couple. And then my friends and I, we all went on the same recruiting visit together, except for one. And Albany was the only school that I went to by myself. And when I went there, I walked in that office and I felt like I was at home. Yeah. I felt like the coaches made me feel special. Um, walking around the campus, I felt like I was at home. It's the only place I didn't do an overnight visit to. And that one day made such an impression on me that when they put the financial package together, it was like, okay, well, I'm going to Auburn. And it was yeah. just so funny because my mom, when you think back, because she had instilled in, in me the ability to go to schools in different locations, I was able to have that confidence to know that I didn't necessarily have to go to school with my friends. You know, that I went to school yep. with, I could go someplace by myself because my mom had ingrained that skill in me where I could relate to people and I could connect with people. And I wasn't, I didn't have that fear. Like I'm stepping out on my own. So that's one of the things and, and it was the best decision I ever made because they were coming off a tough year, but that next four years was truly special at all. Yeah, man. Let's talk about that. So you said you were 39 and seven in that span. You played for legendary coach, Bob Ford, who won over 700 games in his coaching career uh, my coaching career I won my head coaching career I won two games and it was hard as hell to get to that so I can't even imagine getting 700 but you learned so much about winning during that time so you want to just talk about like what it was like to be a part of a winner so um coach Ford was was incredible and he's incredible because one thing's about Albany which I didn't know I, I always decided to be a coach and I didn't know what I was getting myself into but if you research coach Ford in Albany there is probably a number of head coaches and NFL coaches that GA'd on the ball for. I'm talking about from Dave Campo, who used to with the Dallas Cowboys, um, the head coach from Wake Forest. Uh, I mean, it's like it's like a little cradle of coaches that come out of Albany, right? And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And so I tapped into this world, and Coach Ford had this thing where he told us, and he was like, if a kid could do something one time, that means they can do that consistently. And he used to, he challenges coaches to really get get guys on the field who showed or flashed talent or ability, yeah. right? Yeah. So early on in my career as a sophomore, I remember <laughs> I remember after a game, my sophomore year it was the first game of the season against uh, Central Connecticut State, and we had lost the game, and I was devastated. I was crushed. Yeah. So. I go to the bathroom, you know, before we get on the bus, and I'm in the bathroom, and I'm pissed. And I'm talking to somebody, they're like, yo, oh, what do you feel? We lost, we lost like 34 to 20, 29 or something like that. And somebody was talking, I was like, man, I'm pissed. I worked too hard to be to come out here and watch us lose like this when I know I can help. And I was just going off in the bathroom, not knowing that my online coach was in the star right next to me. <laughs> so I'm just going off in the bathroom. So I come out. And I, I get I grabbed my box and I'm getting ready to get on the bus. And he saw me, he stops me, he brought me over. He said, What was you saying in the bathroom? I was like, Well, coach, what I'm saying is this. I come to practice every day, I do everything you ask me to do. All right. Every mistake that man makes, I make sure I do better than he did. There's no there's no reason why I can't go out there and at least do what he what he does, but I know I'm gonna do better. And I was just going in and I made my case. He was like, All right, I'm gonna give you an opportunity this week. 
Okay, so and when we came to practice, it was open competition, and yeah. I went after it. And from that day on, I either rotated or started for the rest of my career at Albany. So it was yeah, just, yeah, yeah. It, it was crazy. But I had no idea, like, because I'm not a vocal person. Normally, I'm reserved, but I was just yeah. pissed because I hate losing. Yeah. And but what what I learned about that though is coach found a way to make sure that the kids who had ability were prepared to get on the field and play and even develop them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so as a, so as a, as a sophomore, as a freshman, he was preparing you to take the, to, to, to take the job or take the spot. And for me in coaching, that's one of the things I always try to do is make sure I identify kids who can play. And if a kid had exhibit a certain skill set, then it's for me and our staff, it's our responsibility to cultivate that so they could do that consistently, right? So, and and that's what Coach always talked about. So that's one of the things I learned from him. Um, and then it, the, the big thing was the family atmosphere. Um, it was truly a, a, a brotherhood, a family atmosphere. Our guys, same thing. I mean, you're talking about guys from all over New York City, New York State, you know, different backgrounds, guys from the city, guys from upstate, guys from Long Island. And we're all together on the same team. And we all going out together at the games. We all having barbecues together. We all doing. So just the idea, the camaraderie that we had with one another was truly special, you know. And I think at the time, we were one of the first schools at that level where we had our strength coach was from the University of Nebraska. And we had a real strong strength program. And we were up there the entire summer just grinding and yeah. bonding and getting together it was it was it was crazy and so it it was just a, a truly a special era um and we just we did a lot of winning because we were, we were well coached well prepared and we just had 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 a family atmosphere and a commitment to just chasing excellence in everything we do and so after you finished your playing career, you, you got to continue uh, as part of that excellence. You were a graduate assistant coach there at the University of Albany after graduation. And then you went over to coach defensive line at Hudson Valley Community, uh, which was a junior college across town in Troy. And you also became a running back coach and offensive line coach there uh, before you left after three years. And this is where it starts getting really interesting. Then you went to Division II Stonehill College as O-line coach and run game coordinator. During that time, the head coaching job at Hudson Valley came open and by the grace of God, you became a junior college head coach at 27 years old. Talk I, to me. I mean, I thought I was so, going to get my head coaching job at Aldine, but Jesus, you, this is, you blew me out of the water here in college. So, too. so let me talk to you about that. Cause this is, it's an unbelievable experience. Well, one thing I've learned and if you do things right and you treat people right, yeah. And they know your worth and they know your work ethic. You're, you're going to be rewarded. And one of the things, you know, Coach Ford taught us was to always find work, right? He always said, whenever you work in any program, there's always work to be done to help that program be successful and win. So that's one of the things that I've always did everywhere I've ever worked. You know, I, no matter my title, once I got done with my job, there's always something else I could do to help us win. And so I always went about it that way. And from there, it just opened doors. I mean, when... When I was in Stonehill, I was working for a great head coach, Chris Woods, who had won the Division II Coach of the Year probably two years prior when he was at Mansfield College in Pennsylvania. And so I knew I was learning a lot from him. I was gleaning a lot. And we were building that program and doing that process. The head coaching job came, comes open at Hudson Valley. So I didn't think nothing of it. So I put my name in the hat. Um, I, I thought I was going to get some experience by interviewing for a head coaching job. I didn't really think I was, I was going to get it at the time I, I went I went in there with my wide, eyes wide open 
had a plan from being there. And next thing you know, after the interview process is over, I'm being told I'm, I'm the next head coach at Hudson Valley. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah. That was an incredible experience, man. It was, it, 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 it was truly uh, rewarding because I got a chance to work with, uh, with some really great young men and some great coaches and uh, learned, 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 learned what it was to stand in the gap for some kids. Because when you had junior college, those kids come in ill-prepared. They're usually the best football player you have in your high school program, but academics is not something they connect with. And right. at that level, our jobs uh, as coaches is to find a way to help them see the importance of the academic component in their football journey, right? So you try to help them to learn how to marry academics and football. And that was a challenge. And we were able to do that for some young men who went on to do some really incredible things, man. When I look back at it right now, I know I got guys that are not only playing in Canada, but like I got a guy right now that's a, a councilman, a city councilman in, in, in Albany. And I, wow. and I think about him because it's like, I can tell you a story about that kid. I mean, he was always a leader. But uh, he didn't always make the right choices. <laughs> and I remember calling him in the office one day and telling him I was about to send him home. And he was like, well, why are you sending me home, coach? I'm like, because either you're going to lead us to victory or you're going to lead us to, you know, to the, to the, to, to the bottom bowl. And yeah. he was like, I, I don't understand. It's like they went out to a club in, in the community and it was a party. And, and he, was, he just had this toughness. He had this uh, probably Napoleon complex, right? And so yeah. he got into a little altercation with somebody exchange words next thing you know if he gets in a fight and the whole team is there guess what this is gonna happen the whole team's gonna get in the fight so it's like you know i told him i said man you can't do that so we had a strong we had we had, we had a strong conversation i talked to him about how his actions were breaking down the, the discipline structure of the program and and you know he's at a crossroad i was about to let him go and he said all right coach give me another chance and we sat down we came up with a plan and we gave him another chance and he ended up beating my leading rusher the next year End up going to my alma mater, University of Albany, and playing, and then and majoring in politics. And yeah, on this way, man, it's it, it's it's incredible. That's a pretty man. cool story, man. Because <laughs> it you know, really is. I, I mean, it's it's, but that but that's why I do it. That's why I got into coaching, and that's why I wanted to go back to Hudson Valley because I knew those kids. They were at a crossroads. They could either go back home and end up in, in, in a lifestyle that probably wasn't to, in their best interests or the best interests of their families, or they could make a chance. They could commit to doing the things academically that they need to do so they could grow and become productive citizens in society. Oji, let me ask you this. Now, I think, I think I know the answer, but cause you, you quickly got into coaching as a GA and you quickly became head coach. But when you started at Albany, did you know, did you already know you wanted to be a coach or did you think you're going to do something different? So I don't know if you did this when you were in high school, but my friends and I, we used to always play this X's and O's game. So it was always something that I was passionate about. You yeah, know, yeah, I didn't yeah. really, I didn't realize what it was until later on when it, my, my plan was I had, I had, I had started off with engineering when I got there, but then I started focusing on going to law school. And then what happened was I did an internship part of my junior year and I worked in a community in Albany and I worked out with some young kids who were from a, economically disadvantaged background and got to know them. And one in that process, I got to realize that they were, they hadn't met people like me. They weren't, they weren't blessed or as fortunate. They had to have been exposed to different things that I had growing up. So to them, I was an anomaly. And it was like, man, it's like, so you go to school? I'm like, yes. And it's like, 
so I could go to school too. And I was like, and I was like, yes. And, and so it was just this, this, this thing where I realized that I could impact young people. Right. Because the kid was talking to me and he opened up about how he couldn't, he, he had to hide his money. Right. Mm. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. He had to hide his money at his house because um, his mom was on drugs. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if he had money in his pocket, when he went home, she would go in his pocket and take and take it and go back. Right. So he opened up to me about all those different things. And, you know, when we started talking about choices and, and, and making the right choices to to help improve his life. And but doing that, doing that process, I realized that I really enjoyed working with people who were from economic disadvantaged background yeah. or kids that look like me who wanted to and letting them know there was more than what they experienced in life. That is life had more to offer. So that, that, that's where that started. And then I was able to connect that with coaching, which was my passion. Football has always been big to me. And that's what changed my life. Let's talk about that a little bit more, OG. Let's talk about, you know, representation and, and why representation matters. You know, I, I, I look back at some of my guests. I think of Coach Cyril Ojeda, who's now taken over for my beloved Aldi Mustangs. He's now the head mm -hmm. coach there. He was on episode number four of the Team Player Podcast. He's one of my early guests. And he always tells the story about how when he, he went to Pasadena High School, it's his alma mater, and his entire time going there, there was only one Hispanic coach. There was only one coach that looked like him that whole entire time, all the way through the program. And he was like a freshman coach, you know, and maybe was there for a short period of time. He wasn't in a leadership position. And whenever Coach Ojeda tells me that story and I see that the rise and the success of the Hispanic Texas High School Football Coaches Association, you know, and other organizations like that, I've just I've I've had coaches or my, you know my friends like Coach Ojeda and Coach Gonzalez you know people of the show talk to me about how important it is to see someone that looks like them in a leadership position. You just shared mm -hmm. those students in Albany to see someone that looks like them and be like you're a student you go to college you know and that inspired them yeah I can do it you can do it too and so I think it does matter you know and yeah. I, I think about myself like. Yes, I'm half Japanese, but like I, I, I basically saw myself as a white Polish guy or whatever. So my coaches look like me. So I always thought that was in the cards for me. I can never understand what it's like for someone like those stories, stories that you're sharing. And I just think it's powerful, man. So can you can you kind of like share with us the, the power of representation, you know, for these kids, in, you know, in our programs? Man, I tell you, I guess one of the things that troubles me now when I look at our society is that. I guess we're moving from where people feel like we have to have programs of diversity programs that helps open doors. Because I could tell you this, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now if it wasn't for some of those diversity programs that helped me open some doors. Because there's truly some challenges that I had to overcome that was yeah. different from some other people, you know? So it's like, I think we're trying to move more towards a society where a survival of the fittest. And what I mean by that is like, if you have the resources, like if you have the financial backing, then you're going to have access to certain things. And if you don't have those, you're not going to have the same access. And I think when I look at some programs, some of the diversity programs, and I don't mean again, apologies or nothing like that. I know that for me, it helped me to bridge a gap and open a door so that I could grow into my potential. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and, and it's it's troubling to me because I think we're, we're going to a place where it's like people like me are not going to have the opportunity anymore because we didn't have that foundation to open that door on our own. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. it's just interesting. So when you talk about this, there's so many layers to this, right? Because um, when kids when, when, when kids look at 
when, when, when those kids looked at me and, and I saw they had hope, which they didn't have before, or they saw they could do different things, or we used to mentor, we had these mentorship programs, we used to bring these young people up to campus and hang out with us and just experience campus life and see what college was like. They were from similar backgrounds as myself. And how that impacted them, it's like, oh, whoa, like I could do something different. You know, I mean, it's just so important because I think you aspire to what you see, right? And yes. if you don't yes. see, if you don't see certain things, those aspirations aren't there, right? So it's so important for us to to make sure that there's a way for everyone to know that they're capable of something greater than what society or what stereotype people put put in place on you. I think about that all the time, OG man. Like for instance, being at Ridgepoint where it's like everybody's expected to go to college, right? Because that's what they see. It's like everybody's parents are, are professional, you know, college graduates, things of that nature. I think at uh, my time at Aldine, you know, a lot of my players, they didn't talk about like wanting to become like a coach, you know? Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe that's part of the reason like Coach Ahead has experienced it. Maybe they didn't see as much representation at that at the time, you know? And I think about that now of Coach Ahead being there and Aislinn Garza is, you know, his awesome, you know, phenomenal female strength and conditioning coach. And I just think yeah. like those kids are so blessed right now in this pre- this point in time to have that. And I bet you there's so many future coaches that Coach Ahead is developing there. But I also think about my friend Sergio Gonzalez, you know, the head football coach at uh, uh, Pasadena Rayburn. He was yeah. episode number 19. OG, he shared with me the story. He's sitting, applying for a head coaching job and they just leave him sitting. They leave him sitting in the uh, interview room long time and he finally goes up to the desk to check like hey i'm i'm here for my interview and literally the woman said oh, i'm sorry that they thought he was there for like a lawn care and I, mm-hmm. I'm, I, he's here for he's here to interview for the campus athletic coordinator and head football coach you know and, and you know these kinds of stories like they happen you know and i remember our conversations and you know i, I know you want to get too deep in, into uh, you know these kind of things but like our conversation when you were going for a head coaching job oh. i was blown off my door i could not believe after having coached, you know, against you and like, I was like, could not believe it took so long for it to happen for you. You know, and so, it, you know, yeah. Like, wh- wh- how do you feel about like kind of some of those stories and in, in your own personal story about, you know, striving for so long to, to get this position you have? Well, you know, there's a process, there's a part of the process with it. And I try to tell all young coaches right now is like, don't, don't become that angry person. Right. Cause it's 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 it, it can be daunting. I mean, it, it, it's emotionally challenging, right? Because I could tell you about an experience about interviewing and doing well, interviewing and doing well, interviewing and doing well, and then being told, you know what, you did a great job, but you're not the right fit. And it's like your question is at that point is, what 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 is what it, what 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 is the right fit? What does that mean? Yeah. All right. What does that mean to be the right fit? You know what I mean? Because it's like when you sit down and, and I remember interviewing for a couple of jobs and they're like, coach, well, one, I, we didn't expect you to perform the way you did. And we don't think the school is ready for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? What does that mean? You know what I mean? Because it's like. And I'm not the only one that's been told that, right, because I'm sure there are white coaches and different coaches with different backgrounds who've heard that before. Right. But. When you're from the background that I'm from and you've experienced some of the experiences I have and someone says that to you, it, it just makes you start thinking, what does that truly mean when they say you're not the right fit, yeah. you know? And w- what what is the right fit? So you, you try to figure that out, right? So it, 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 so what happens to some people is they become angry yeah. and disillusioned 
And, you know, for lack of a better word, there's this term that people always say is, are you the angry black man? And I, I try to make sure, you know, I, I leaned heavily on my spiritual connection with God and just really trusted him and let him guide my career because he always has. Like everything that I've ever wanted, I've experienced and then more. And then he's opened doors that I didn't even think could open and he's closed doors that I wanted to be open, but then opened some other doors that, I, that, that, that have been unbelievable, right? So I learned to just trust him on the journey and, and really know that what he has for you you can't no man take away from you. You know what I mean? So yeah. uh, I think about that process. I think about some of the jobs that I've wanted over the years. And, you know, he closed those doors, in my opinion. And he opened his door at Side Springs. And I, I couldn't be more thankful and grateful to, to God for his for his guide in my career. Yeah, man. And I I think back and I I, I think I did misremember that story of Sergio because it, it wasn't applying for a head job. It's actually, I think, his first time applying as an assistant. But that mm -hmm. story still rings true. He's here to apply yeah. as a coach and a teacher. And because of the way that he looks, it was just assumed that he was applying for you know a, a maintenance kind of position. Mm -hmm. And then that's just that's pretty troubling. You know, and I, th I think another another episode people should check out is episode number 15, Quisha Dickerson, head girls basketball coach at my alma mater, Fort Ben Austin High School. Yes. Yeah. When he talks about not a good fit, she she shared an experience with us where she was head coach at Lamar, consolidated high school, had a lot of success, went to another, you know, a kind of a more suburban program and did have did kind of butt heads. And there was some differences in her coaching style and the way that the parents received it. And mm -hmm. so those kinds of I guess those kinds of experiences may be what administrators are, are referring to but like for me like i look back at the end of the day i'm like why why, why is that becoming an issue like at the end yeah. of the day like i just want my kid coached hard and loved yeah. <laughs> and i can promise you quisha dickerson's doing that you know what i'm saying yeah. so it's like she's a phenomenal coach she's a phenomenal exactly, coach exactly man and i just think that there's just so many things that we're still working through and i think you you hit the nail on the head earlier where a lot of it is just like assuming things about people like some of these examples that, that we've shared like you just assume things about people before you actually get an honest opportunity to get in there and get to build relationships. So, man, like I said, we had many a talk while you were going through the, this, the, the, the search and it always blew my mind, but I'm so happy that you, you found uh, a great place. But before we, we get to the present, let's still talk a little bit more about the past. You mentioned those programs, uh, the programs, you know, that, that helped you gain some experiences that, that strengthened you as a coach. And one of the ones that you shared with me was the Bill Walsh minority internship for the New York giants. And that led you to get a quality control O-line and tight ends job with the Hartford colonials, which was a UFL upstart, which a minor league to the NFL at the time, you know, unfortunately the league folded, you know, but you still got that experience. And for me, I'm a big roughnecks fan. I'm a big Houston roughnecks fan. I love the XFL. I love the USFL. One of our former players from Ridgepoint, Warren Thomas, he was an off, he was a tackle for us. He's now a defensive lineman for the Roughnecks. And wow. so I, I kind of get to kind of talk with him and we'll find out what it's like to be on the team. But, like, I guess my question is, is twofold. Number one, can you speak to, like, a little bit more uh, – you already kind of shared this, but it was important for you in this minority internship program to gain these kinds of access because probably without the program, you never would have gotten the opportunity of the Colonials. That's my first question is how important was it just to get the opportunity? And then number two – being in these upstart leagues and a lot of times they don't they don't make it but like i love these leagues i love seeing these guys that like they're playing for the love of the game but also that hunger that they believe they can do it and make it to the nfl so can you just talk about that like a what was it how important was it to get the opportunity and then b what was it like being in one of these kind of upstart leagues man it was you know one of the things that uh coach palmer who is the head coach at the hartford Colonials, talked to me about is like look 
I, you need to make this like your road scholar experience. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know yeah. what the future holds, but you need to glean as much as you can from this and utilize it throughout your career. And I can honestly tell you, I learned a lot about football. I learned a lot about coaching in, the, in, that, in that time. Um, you know, I talk about my time with the Giants. I mean, that that, that was an incredible experience. And um, to be there, to be sitting down in the room with Coach Coughlin and watch him lead and watch – how he coached the staff, I learned so much about what it means to be a head coach from that experience yeah. alone. You know yeah. what I mean? Because I, I, you know, you think you know what it means to be a head coach and you sit down and you get in the seat and, you know, you're coaching your kids, you, you're, you're directing your coaches, but it, it really wasn't truly until I sat down and watched him work. And it was 2009, right after they won the Super Bowl was when I was with the Giants. They had won the Super Bowl the year before. And so the connection was the Giants used to do their summer training every year at Albany. So I was able to watch and see that. But then I was able to get on the inside and be in meetings and sit down and study and watch and learn and how they did things. And, you know, just just seeing what a head coach is supposed to do and really how he held his coach accountable. Because one of the things that, you know, everybody say, head coach, you're supposed to coach your coaches, right? But I don't think you people truly understand what that means to coach your coaches, right? Because we all get in this business and we're trying to impact young people and we think about coaching our kids and making sure our kids are doing right. You watch the film, you see it, you analyze, you break down, you talk about how everybody's improving. But when you sit in that chair and you're the head coach, not only are you doing that for the kids, but you're also doing that for the coaches. And I think sometimes we forget or young coaches forget. At 27, I really didn't truly understand what that meant to really coach my coaches. And after that meeting and after talking to Coach Coughlin, he said, that's the most important thing you can take away from me about being a head coach is, is that right there. And really sitting down and marinating on it and figuring out, okay, have I been truly coaching the coaches for the last four years that I've been here? And what does that look like? How do I change to make sure I'm coaching my coaches to do the right thing? And it, 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 was, it, was, it was monumental in changing my perspective on coaching, you know? And so – I've been able to sit down and really now look at my staff and say, all right, this is what this is what needs to happen. And this is what's happening on film. And this is what you're coaching, but making sure that they not only am I holding the kids accountable, but holding them accountable. You, you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And make sure they understand the standard and make sure I'm directing them when it's not fitting what my vision is for the program or my vision is for what's going on. And really as a whole, not only, directing the kids, but also directing the staff and making sure everybody's moving in one, in one, in, in one flow, flowing together and, and really doing the things that we need to do to be successful. Now, you know, you mentioned your wife, Leela earlier on in the show and you know, she, she's awesome. And she's now works uh, there at the Barry center. So always like whenever I pop through, it's always nice to see her, you know, and say hi, but you mentioned, you know, obviously she, she used to work in the Mike Tyson's camp. We are just so awesome. So I know you guys, you know, I guess you'd met her in New York. I take it then you guys, so crazy story. <laughs> so we went to high school together. Okay, right? I didn't know that. Cool. So, yes, but we were just friends in high school. Yeah. Um, nothing, you know. I didn't even see. I didn't think about her in that way at all. She was a friend of mine, and I, honestly, I, I have a crazy story that we always talk about. When we graduated, I was actually mad at her, which I didn't even know why I was mad at her. Which <laughs> I didn't even realize I was mad at her until like maybe two years into our marriage, we had a conversation. I was like, hold up. That was you? Because, <laughs> all right, so my last year my last year in high school, um, 
they they had this thing where they were changing the names of our our team, right? Mm. And so our our high school football team was the the Lafayette Redmen. Our, right. And you know, at that time, they were moving away from any names sure. that was that could be interpreted wrong towards a Native American. Mm-hmm. But we we as a program that took so so much pride in the name that we didn't see anything wrong with it at the time, right? So mm-hmm. as kids. 16, 17 years old, why are you trying to change our name? Like, that's who we are. Like, we're the Redmen. Like, and we, we were with pride and dignity, right. you know? Yeah. So, but my wife was part of the student council that spearheaded the change and, yeah. and she was pushing this. So, yeah, she yeah. was really in my doghouse, right? At the end of the, at, at the end of our high school career, because I, I was like, you, you were responsible for that. You're the reason why they changed my name, our school name, right? So, so, it was just really funny because we reconnected probably about uh, maybe about 15 years later at a high school, one of those high school reunion things. And no way. This is awesome. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like, <laughs> so I, and we were just friends just talking, you know, and then I ended one relationship. And next thing you know, me and my wife got into a relationship and yeah, she just checked all the boxes. She just did everything right. I mean, it was, it was, it was unbelievable, you know, cause I, yeah. I didn't see it coming at all, you know? So, yeah, yeah. So, but she's a, she's an unbelievable woman. Um, very smart, um, incredible work ethic, incredible mother. Um, my life is better because she's in it, and I'm just lucky. I'm just glad I found her. But it's just uh, one of those things where I, I I I I told her if I had known that that was you when we first reconnected, we might not be sitting here today. <laughs> so, like we were not because we were so angry. Like we were so. I, we had we had these shirts made at the time, you know. We were we were this we were, we were Brooklyn City Brooklyn District Tramps that year, and we had the shirts made that we were the last of the Redmen. It was like we I mean it was it, we were over the top with it. We were yeah we were pretty devastated about the name, and so when I reconnected with her, I did not associate that with her. Right, so when we got married and two years later we started talking about this, and I'm like I'm looking at her like hold up that was you you did that. I was like babe you know if I if I knew that. Three years ago, we probably wouldn't be talking right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, she might have felt the same way about you. She's like, these these jocks just care about their name. And <laughs> <laughs> that, that is, so that's a great man. story, man. So that's so awesome. And you said after the league <laughs> folded, you you two decided, hey, we're going to come to Texas. You said you started looking into the high school football game. Of course, obviously, Texas, fertile hotbed for high school football. So can you, can you talk about that decision to leave everything you knew behind in New York State to, to come to Texas? So it – so it wasn't real. So I've always been to Houston my whole life growing up. Uh, my my aunts, my cousins, they all oh, okay. r- live down in Houston. Okay. So I used to come down in the summertime. Um, my mom was looking to relocate and she was, her sisters were down here. So she was looking at Texas, blah, blah. So at the time I was like, okay, well, you know, let me go down there and help her with this transition. Since I, I was still getting paid by the UFL. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I had some small college offers back up in Northeast and I'm like, okay, do I want to go coach small college football until I find something bigger and work my way back up or what am I going to do? So I'm down here helping my mom. Um, Then I'm like, I keep hearing about Texas high school football, Texas high school football. I'm like, well, let me go check this thing out. Right. So um, the defensive coordinator I worked for in Hartford was actually um, at, worked at the University of Illinois with James Williams, the head coach okay. of Marshall, yep. Yep. and James GA for him. So James was looking for an OC. I was down here, so he came down. He had took a job at San Diego State after the league folded, and he came down recruiting. And he was like, "Well, you know what? 
I got a guy you need to meet. And so he connected us. We sat down. We had a conversation. Hit it off. One thing led to another. And then I was at Marshall for the next 10 years. It was, you know. 10 I, years. Wow. Yeah. It, it was just so. Yeah. One, providing job security. You know, yep. it was like one thing when you work in the pros and colleges is like, you could get fired for somebody else's mistake, right? It's mm-hmm. like, if you if I work for you and you mess up, then I'm I'm out of a job and I got to move my family. I was getting a chance to settle down, start a family. I was like, you know what? Let me do something different. And it was like, okay, I'm 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 gonna do this. So once I started, it f- f- fulfilled all my needs and desires. Like I was able to m- impact young people, right? Because that's ultimately why I got into this business, right? Because of being able to impact young people and help them grow, and and, and just stand in the gap and be a bridge to help them to grow into productive, responsible citizens, right? So that was. That I, I felt that I was able to do football at a very high level down here. I mean, yeah, the game, the X and O's is 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 truly, truly. When they talk about Texas, no one does it like Texas. Yeah. So uh, you know, I so I, I I felt like I I was hitting all my needs, and I was able to impact the world like how I wanted to impact the world. So it was like no need no need for me to go chasing anything up in the Northeast. I yeah. felt like I had everything I I needed and I wanted was right here. Let's talk about James Williams, man. I, I always say the most un, singly most underrated head football coach in Texas high school football. James Williams is awesome. Like, okay, so aside from the before we get to the football part, just as a person, like honestly, like now that I do broadcasting, you know, and like sometimes Roger Smith and I would call games out there, you know, and James is like, James is the one coach that like every time after you do the pregame, and a lot of coaches are friendly too, but I'm just saying like James is the one coach that like every time after you do the pregame interview looks you right in the eye and like from the bottom of his heart says, thank you for covering our game. We really appreciate it. Like just humble, you know, and I, I just always love those interactions as a broadcaster, you know, with James now as a competitor, cause I also had to compete against James. I see the, just the level of detail, just the level of detail that he puts in that program. One of my favorite memories that one time I went, I was for broadcasting and I went, you guys are doing spring ball of course, he had the awesome track team. A lot of the coaches were gone. So James is kind of like almost by himself with the defense. And he's coaching his ass off. Just, you know, going this, that, you know, he's, I don't know. I Just James Williams is, for all those reasons, is a guy that I think just should like, he should be like, when you talk about John Kay or, you know, whatever, like James Williams should be like right there in that same sentence to me. And so I'm just curious, like, man, what, what was your, what was it like working, working to work with him? It was incredible. Um, and I'm going to tell you that a lot of people, a lot of people don't really truly realize how disciplined and how hard that man works. I mean, yeah. how disciplined he is and how hard he worked because, you know, I, I watched him over the years and in, in my 10 years, he's a finalist for the touchdown club many years, but he never gets over the hump. And I remember one year they said, you know, because he played so many HISD teams or whatever, it was always a different reason, right? Move, keep and moving I, the goalpost. Yeah. Yes. So, but the thing about James Williams, which most people don't understand, is what he's overcoming. Like what you see, the product he puts on the field. Yeah. Is that's what you see, right, on yeah. Saturday nights and Friday nights? But what people don't see is the journey to get to Friday nights and Saturday nights, right? Everybody sees Marshall; they have all this speed, all this talent, and they're like, "Well, anybody could do that." Well, that's not what it is. Yeah. And from being on the inside, you know, it's like you you think about the structure of a school like North Shore, who's always in state. Um, you think about how many coaches they have in the athletic periods, right? You think about their players being in the athletic period, right? 
and then you go to Marshall and you don't have that structure, mm. but you have that success. Right. What people don't understand is how is this happening? It's, it's happening because of James Williams, his incredible commitment to, to the details like you talked about and the discipline that he ex exudes every day. The fact that he may not have his coaches in, in the athletic period, but he's going to find a way to make sure his kids get better, right? Yeah. I, it, it was so funny because I two years ago, at the year after I left, everyone was upset at him because they lost in the first round. But nobody ever talks about the fact that that was the year that they Fort Ben Marshall went to a split schedule, right? Yeah. So he had half his team on one day in that third period. The other half his team get on out of here. That, period. that, that half, half his coaches. Are, so so yes, you're talking about a state championship program that's going through that, right? Wow. But no one says this man and what he's accomplishing, despite those challenges, despite the different obstacles he's overcome. Yeah, it, it never deters him. So when when I get to where I got at Side Springs, I look at things. I look at it through a completely different lens than everybody else. You know, when when people see problems, I see opportunity because of just my experience being with James and knowing that we're going to find a way to get over this. This is not an issue. Whatever the issue is. We're not going to let us stop us to stop it from accomplishing our goals. And as a program, that's that's the philosophy he had, and that's how he led it. And I've adopted that to this day. So it, he's truly one of the most special human beings out there. I, I wish people could understand and see really, really what he's doing behind the scenes to get that program to game day and some of the challenges and things that he might overcome that you wouldn't believe from a team that went to state back-to-back -back would have to deal with something like that. Like, you just wouldn't believe it. I totally understand it. And I mean, I, just like from, you know, being the defensive coordinator at Ridgepoint and then becoming the head coach at Aldean, the thing that I found was sometimes in different different settings, like there's just more things that come up during the week in, in the students' personal lives, you know? And where, you know, like you said, just getting to the game day, making sure everyone's on the same page, ready to go and without distractions. And I mean, I, 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 so I learned that myself. And I mean, I can, I'm, I'm really happy you got to observe that with James for all those 10 years. And now you're getting to take it, you know, to size Springs, but I don't want to talk about size Springs. I still want to re reminisce on Marshall a little bit, man. Cause I, I, I talk about welcome to varsity moments, man. One of those for me as a coach was you. <laughs> <laughs> it was our, it was our first varsity season and the 2012 football season, man. I'm looking back at max preps right now, 51 to seven out there at Mercer stadium, man. Oh my God! You you just put a beating on on on, my, on us and myself, and you you were probably looking like, what is this kid? Do? What my, talking about me? What is he doing? <laughs> Defensive coordinator at Rich Point, man, because you guys could do whatever you wanted, man. That was that was a masterclass, and I I instantly was like, I already kind of seen what you're doing, obviously watching the film leading up to it, but I felt so powerless in that game. But as I watched you over the years, or one thing before I go into that, Mo Porter. That Maurice Porter, man, you, you talk about physical play. I'll just never forget how physical he was in that football game. So that that is one guy that will always I'll remember that name. Uh, so can you just speak to, about him for a minute? Just Mo Porter really so, stood out to me in that game. I can I can tell you that 2012 was a special group of offensive linemen. Yeah. We had Mo Porter. We had Mo Porter. We had Darius Moore. Yeah. We had Marcus Johnson. Uh, we had Tyza Williams. I mean, we had a special group of seniors that year that were. That played soft their, their sophomore year on varsity, they took their lumps, right? Kind of like what your kids were doing that exactly first right. year. Yep. So they went out there their sophomore year and they took their lumps. And two years later, coming back, 
being in the weight room for a couple of years and learning the system and being in the same system for two or three years and speaking the same language, the, the light bulb came on, right? So it was like they those guys understood our system inside and out and that they were able to go out on that field and they were able to decode defenses and make yeah. adjustments up front office line wise that you know few few groups get to do. And I remember one game we were playing uh, Stratford, just thinking about that group. And we were playing Stratford, and they were they were multiple front. They played went from odd, even. Uh-huh. And I remember the referee coming over to us and was like, Coach, I've never seen this before. And he's like, what, what are you talking about? It's like, your right tackle, we're talking about Mo Porter. Yeah. He's like redirecting and, re- and changing the blocking scheme after every <laughs> alignment that the defense is doing. And the kids are all making the call. It's like, they are so well coached. Like I got to give y'all credit. And but that but that was that group. They that, they they had the X's and O's, and they were physically ready to dominate. Yeah. And and it, it was and from going through and taking their lumps early on, and it, it was just it's just a special group. <laughs> Mo so. Porter went on to play at Baylor. Played at the Buffalo Bills, I believe, for a period as yeah. well. Man, you know so. Yeah, and, was, who was that? You a couple years. Uh, Mo Porter always stands out in my mind. And as a broadcaster, I remember you had an interior offensive lineman that went to Texas A and M. Yes, Barton Clement. And he Clem, was special. Barton Clement. He also. I was like, wow, this is like a Mo he Porter was special. Level guy. He was special, and he yeah. was, he was academically special and athletically special. Barton. So Barton went to Mo City Middle School, and you know, in the summertime, you do your sack camp. And Barton used to come over every summer and he started working out. And, and I remember when he was in seventh grade and eighth grade, we kept looking at him like, coach, this kid is in the weight room and he's cleaning, you know, weight that your varsity guys were cleaning. And, yeah. and I'm talking about in middle school. And yeah. we were looking at him. And like whatever you taught him, he could he could read, he could, he could do it and imitate and emulate and execute within seconds of you teaching him. And I'm like, there's something different about this kid, you know. Yeah. So he comes over his freshman year, which was, was crazy. We had some depth issues on the offensive line. And we're like, well, are we going to play Barton on freshman? We're going to play him on, on varsity. I'm like, well, physically he was ready to play on varsity because he was lifting weights that was stronger than most of the varsity kids. Yeah. And he was smarter than most of the varsity kids, even though he hadn't been in the system. Yeah. The system was so simple. So he picked it up. So I remember we're in, we're in camp and we asked that we had a, a backside tug block against a tackle, tackle and guard double team and three technique to the backside linebacker. Yeah. And he was a senior guard he was working with, right? And yeah. so we, we call the play inside zone to the right. You start the tug block. The guard wouldn't come off to get the linebacker, right? So Barton takes it himself, folds around the guard and goes and gets the linebacker. Yeah. And at that point, I said, oh, Lord, this kid is different. Yep. <laughs> and this yep. is during the scrimmage. And we said, we're like, man, this kid just really folded around the guard. And he asked, I said, Barton, well, why did you do that? Well, coach, he wouldn't come off. <laughs> Love it. And somebody had to block him. So I went and blocked him. I said, show right, coach. <laughs> show right. Let, let me ask you this, coach, man. We don't talk too much X's and O's, but just a little bit, just like for me going against you and observing you, I just felt like your offense – the reason why I was so successful was because of the job you did teaching your kids. Like I felt, I felt like we were being read all the time is how I felt. I felt like everything was just predicated on whatever coach Kobo puts us in. Like, OG's going to do the other thing, you know, to make us, that's how it felt to me, you know? And I'm just curious. So like your, your offensive philosophy, just in general, you don't have to go too specific, but is that accurate? Like was, was a lot of it you so, doing like the work teaching the kids how to read correctly to put them in the right play? So yeah. So at the time we were we were spread offense and 
we're a lot of run RPO type. Yeah. So what what we taught our kids and our QBs was everything was based on numbers and leverage. I yeah. mean, yeah. so it was simple for them. You know what I mean? If they had numbers on the perimeter, we were going to get the ball on the perimeter and let those kids go to work. We had numbers in the box. We we're going to run the ball. And yeah. then you had the QB. We usually had after the QB. So we always had a plus one with that situation. Yes. So that kind of always put the defense in a bind, right? Yep. So that and also playing at tempo, that also yes. created yes. another conflict yes. for the defense, right? So the, that that was some of the things that we were doing. You know, it's it's funny because we're we're about to enter our third year of the system at South Springs. And it's like we're, we're probably – this is probably going to be the – first year where I think the kids understand the system and we could probably unleash it to that level. We haven't, right. we've been bits and pieces of it here and there, had to adapt some things here over the last couple of years, but having a senior quarterback coming back next year, having some kids that's been in the system on JV, understand the language and lingo and your terminology. So this is probably going to be the first year where we as a staff, my office coordinators, they're excited because I think they feel like they're going to be able to, take the handcuffs off or take the gloves off the kids this year and really right. get truly getting back to playing that type of football. You know, I think the last couple of years as coaches, we've been doing what you're saying, reading it and controlling yeah. it. But I think now once the kids learn the system, take about three years. Now you can allow them to run the system. So we, we built the system so that the kids can go on the field and play fast and really Great conflict for the defense all over the place, right? Um, you have a front side conflict, a back side conflict, and then you got your base run game. And you know, we, we, it's it's just something that at the time it was it was it, we were we were probably at the forefront of RPO style football yeah, at that time. Yeah. So it created a lot more because people hadn't seen it, they didn't know how to handle it, manage it. Um, of course, you guys caught up to us and made some adjustments, and then we had to make some other adjustments. But Which you want let's talk about that a little bit though, because <laughs> I took a page out of your playbook, man. Like the Ridgepoint defense was very player led in a lot of ways, in a sense of that. Like we we were extremely simple. You know that from studying our film. Yes. Like we, we were a defense, we did not flip. I mean, we were just always there and we just knew we we're gonna get lined up correctly. That was the reason we didn't flip. I want to make sure we get lined up correctly. We had the added bonus of having very talented players, but also very well-rounded players. So mm -hmm. they were so similar to each other, we didn't have to flip. And so we, right. we took that out. So no, you couldn't really tempo us as we got stronger because like we weren't flipping. And so it was very mm -hmm. easy for us to get lined up. But then like you, I just taught the system and we just stayed of our system. And you said, you mentioned sophomores turned into juniors, turned into seniors by that senior year when Ridgepoint had that root, we had that awesome year in 2014, the players were taking a lot of ownership. And what that was able to do is those outside linebackers, like a Justin Jackson and Cameron Townsend, they could play with their width. They knew where they need to end up, but they were playing the width to mess with people's reads for teams that would try to read. And so that, that's what it was, man. But I, I, I was like, I had that revelation of when, you know, watching you, talking to you, of realizing, like, it's not about me being the puppet master and trying to, you know, it's, it's teaching these kids to understand the scheme. And I just, I totally love that about your offense. So we started doing that. We got way better. But the one thing I love about you, OG, I felt like you were the master of always knowing when to interject yourself back into it with a trick play. And I just say you always did a really good job in big games, knowing when it was that time to unveil some kind of like some kind of trickery to catch mm -hmm. the defense. So can you just talk about that, the, your, your strategy behind that? Like as a coach, so, a lot of obviously a lot of coaches listen to this. What are you thinking to knowing when is the right time to use that special play? So I think a lot of people, um, I guess for me, I don't use special plays until I have to. I, yeah. I, to me, you put things on film, you waste it, right? 
Yeah, it's sure. like because you know you guys are defense coordinators are so good at, at preparing for what they see, right? So I like to review. I like to do things in layers, right? So it's like there's one layer I'm going to show you this week, and there's another layer to that. That I'm. But the thing about it is those trick plays are plays that we practice all year. And it's like the kids get they get anxious, right? And it's like even my coaches get anxious because I remember yeah. there's a trick play we put in la- this last year. And my coach was like, Well, coach, when are we gonna call it? And I'm like, it's not ready yet. And it's like, Well, how, how do we know when it's ready? Yeah, I'm like, because they're gonna let us know. The kids let us know when it's ready. Yeah, and what yeah. I mean by that is you call it in practice, you call it in practice, and you might call it in a bad situation, and no matter what, the kids make work it out and they just yeah. find a way to make it work. And when the kids get to the point where they can run that play at a level where no matter how bad it is, they're going to make it work. That's kind of when I know it's ready. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I always had that thing that I look for with trick plays. Like when we call in practice, call in practice, and it'll work, it'll work. Or, you know, like let's say reverse. You call in practice a number of times and you might fumble the toss or you might, yeah, yeah. you know, you might, that the guard doesn't get around for the, the backer and, you know, or they don't understand the difference between who pulls on the odd front versus who pulls on the even front. So you, you got this play in and you're just waiting to figure out when to call it. And it's like, but it's a good play, coach. It is a good play, but I'm not going to call it yet. And it's like, because I'm not, the kids didn't tell me they were ready for me to call it. Yeah, when the kids yeah. tell you, that's when I call it. And so then once the kids let you know it's ready, then it becomes, okay, your opponent. You start breaking down your opponent, start breaking down your opponent. What are their tendencies? And now does this 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 trick play attack their weaknesses or the tendencies, you know, of the defense? You know what I mean? It's like, it, it, it was funny because, I know a lot of people remember the the, the most city miracle, right? That that yeah. trick play that, that we did versus Huntsville, yep. and that was probably the best defensive line. We, and that front that front yeah. six was probably the best we've ever seen yeah. ever. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. never seen anything like it. And I remember we were in a dog fight in the third quarter, and uh, I talked to Coach uh, Paget down. I said, Coach Paget, do you talk to the kids about um, Riverside? It was it was a reverse pass we had a name uh-huh. for it and i said just talk to them about it let them know it's on deck we're gonna call it at some point blah blah right mm-hmm. so and i remember when we got down it was like fourth down or whatever and, and i had called it and, and the kids were like huh <laughs> and we were <laughs> like yeah we're gonna run that and i'm like and then, and then we told them make it work <laughs> and yeah. they were like okay <laughs> so they ran out there and the defensive end who went to Texas, who's an incredible defensive lineman. He's probably playing the league right now. I can't remember his name. Yeah. He blows the whole thing up. <laughs> All right. The receiver tosses the ball to A-Chan. A-Chan, he sees the whole thing blow up, so he plants and re- redirects and then throws it <laughs> to um, Delvon Campbell. Yeah. But the thing about that is, when I talk to you about a play, you run it until it's ready, it, it, we had never run it like that before, right? But we ran it and it's been bad and the kids created before. Right? They they created before. So when that happened, it wasn't foreign to them. If yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It was yep. like, okay, we just gotta make this work. And that's how they they, they went, but that's from running it over and over and over the whole season. We had yeah. never put it on film before. But the kids had ran it over against our defense, and our defense, they kind of know what it, what what to expect. So they started feeling a certain way. Yeah. And then Eventually, kids figured out, well, we're just going to make it work. <laughs> Man, I love that. And you brought up the guy, the last guy that I was going to ask you about before we move on from the Marshall chapter of your career, Devon Achan. I'm so glad I didn't have to coach against him. I got to do it as a broadcaster and watch his brilliance. But, I mean, watching him at a and I've just been so blown away. He's, he's, 
he's at the, you know, he just finished the combine. He's going to enter the NFL draft. And I just, I remember Sergio Gonzalez talked about how uh, A-Chan was in his freshman geography class or something. He just, he, I think Coach Gonzalez just said he knew at that moment, like this kid is special. He's going to, he's going to go to the league. And, and you know, people look at Devon A-Chan and he's not a big guy. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't just jump. If you just see a still photo of him, you're not thinking like NFL player, but man, he's got elite speed. But to me, the separator is his strength. I think people don't understand by looking at how strong he is. I watched him run through tackles, and he became a workhorse for Texas A&M this year. So can you just talk about everything all everything Dave on H, uh, Devon A-Chan related, man? Because I'm such a I'm, fan. I'm, I'm going to tell you, he, was, he the great ones make the game look simple, like yeah. it's easy. You know what I mean? For me, as a coordinator, I I just had to get him the ball in space, right? right it was right, right. I had to find a way to get him the football with a plus one situation or numbers, and you allow his athletic ability to do the same, right? It's like um, one of the things we worked tirelessly at is making sure that whatever defense we we're playing, the blocking scheme or whatever scheme we we're using, we we're creating, we're even in the numbers. We're never yeah. going to let the defense have that plus one on him. Right. We wanted to make it even because if it was even, then that lo- allowed him to go to an entire different level. Yeah. And we worked our behinds off because even if we weren't even, he was going to make that one guy miss, right? Yeah. So yeah. we worked as hard as we could as, as a staff to create that um, because we knew the ability he had. But um, you're talking about a kid that lived for the big moments, man. It's like when you were in the worst situation, he was always going to perform. You know, yeah. he's one of those guys that told you just give him the ball. And he'd get out the way. You know, I remember his coming out party might have been, I think, his junior year against Manville. And he scored like seven touchdowns in that game. And I'll never forget it because we were going into that game and our starting quarterback, he had hurt his foot the week before. And he, we're going to that game and he comes in on that Monday with one of those orthopedic shoes on, right? And we're like, well, what, what are you doing? It's like, well, I, I'm hurt, coach. I, I, I'm going to be all right, but I'm hurt. So he couldn't practice. So we had Manville that week. So we said, well, what are we going to do? <laughs> well, we looked around and the number two wasn't ready. So we were like, well, Vaughn, you're going to play quarterback this week. And Vaughn's like, I do not want to play quarterback coach. I'm like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we don't got no choice. <laughs> and we proceeded to go out there and do something that he did not want to do that he doesn't like doing and score seven touchdowns and win the game for us in overtime. That 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 is incredible. All right. That's the type yep. of person he is. Um, just a competitor. Just a competitor. At the end of the day, he's going to compete and go get it. So, Coach, after all that prolonged success at Marshall as an offensive coordinator and all those efforts trying to find, you know, an opportunity to take a program over and lead as your own, you are granted that opportunity. You become the new head football coach, campus athletic coordinator at Cy Springs, the Cy Springs High School Panthers. And I'm not doing this to, to you know, negatively bring up the past or anything, but I want the listeners to kind of realize what you were walking into here. I'm, I'm just reading the three records uh, starting in 2018, you know, before you got there, one and nine, Oh, and 10, one and nine. So those are, those are the three seasons preceding when, when you came, you know, to, to the program. And I have experience of that being at Ridgepoint. You know, I went from a 12 and one season, my last year at Ridgepoint to two and eight, my first year as a head coach and then Oh, and 10, my second year. So I, I've lived an Oh, and 10 season, you know, and it's something that honestly, like nobody wants to do it, but I think it could be valuable for coaches to live, to live through it and gain that experience and how to work through that. But that's my first question because spoiler alert, you were one game away from the playoffs this year. So in just your second year, you took the Owen 10, one and nine, one and nine 
and now you you know you were one game out of the playoffs in one of the best districts in the state. First of all, talk to us, all of us coaches that, you know, usually if we're getting a head coaching job, that means we were a successful coordinator like yourself, you know, myself. That's usually how it works, right? So talk to us about going from being successful to suddenly you're in a situation where, you know, winning, it has it's been a while since the team has won consistently and what that's like. So taking over Side Springs. Um, so one of the things that we looked for was a certain DNA, right? Um, yeah. When you're looking for a head coaching job. And Side Springs had some problems before we got there. And um, But one of the things that I remember was Marshall had some problems before James took it over too, right? They were two and eight, uh, maybe three and seven, two and eight, three years prior before he got there. But there was some similar DNA. And what I mean by that is there are athletes in the program. Uh, you go back, um, I mean, just this year alone, we had Leon O'Neill Jr. who played at AM. They had Tay Barber who played at um, TCU. Um, they had uh, KDOT who played at uh, FAMU. And they had, so they had Division One athletes in the program, right? But so for mm-hmm. some reason, they hadn't put them together. So we saw that DNA when we were looking at the program, like, okay, how do you, what am I taking over? All right. So then you start dissecting and you start figuring out what's going on. And one of the things that Side Springs always had is it's always had great coaches. It's always had good coaches. Mm-hmm. I think coming from a situation that I have, and I think what people didn't understand, quite understand, is what it took to make Marshall work, right? And we talked right. about that a little while ago about the obstacles that you have to overcome and not not dwelling on the obstacles and being focused on the, the goal and, and, and the journey. And one thing, James, in, in that program, I mean, Lloyd Banks, <laughs> Rodney yeah. Alex, all those yeah. guys yep. in that program, Samuel Padgett, I met some tremendous coaches at at um, at um Marshall. And one thing that they all did and that they were all personal was building relationships with athletes, right? Yeah. That had to be one of the foundational pieces because, one, we had to figure out and dissect what our athletes needs at Side Springs and figure out how can we help them. Because one thing we know, like I tell you, Sashman's had good football coaches, but where we're coming from Fort Ben Marshall, we had good football coaches who took the relational piece with the, with the kids off the field to an entirely different level, right? Which alleviated you being involved in a lot of this dysfunction that they were dealing with off the field. So there was nothing that was going on with any athletes that you didn't know, understand, or were in the midst of. Right. So when I, when I got to side Springs, the, the the biggest challenge was finding the coordinators, identifying coordinators that, that could come in and exhibit the same characteristics we had at, at Marshall. And that's where Chris Wilson, Michael yep. Carter, Zane Brown, yeah, those those three guys, my 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 offensive coordinators and my defense coordinator, they came in there. I mean, they understood the culture that we were trying to establish. And the culture is is a is a place where those kids understood that we cared about them bigger than football. It's not about football with us. It's yeah. about you, your success, and your life. And building those relationships and those bonds and those ties with those athletes off the field and laying that foundation and taking it to another level because at that point, once you have those bonds and those ties and those kids know you care about them at that level, now you can raise the bar when it comes to the work ethic, right? And one of the things we live by at, at South Springs is what we call CHOP. You know what I mean? It's committed hard work over a period of time. And mm-hmm. Our kids, they'll say that all the time because it's just a committed focus on us understanding that we're trying to accomplish a goal 
and we're going to swing and we're going to work and we're going to grind until that goal happens. And Chop, you know, I, I stole that that whole thing from Greg Shiano when he was at Rutgers years ago. And they talked about chopping, chopping, chopping. And Greg talked talked about the process of chopping down a tree. And, you know, it's like when you swing the axe the first time and you, and you swing and you hit a tree, what's going to happen? Nothing, right? It's going to still be there. Then you're going to take that axe, you're going to swing it again, nothing's going to happen. And then you swing and you swing. And if you, if you focus on that one spot and you lock in and you continuously swing that axe, sooner or later, you're going to start hearing that tree cracks and then that tree's going to fall, right? So I need the kids to understand the process it's going to take to change the culture so that we're not riding a roller coaster. That's one thing a lot of kids, if you you come in, you preach about winning, you preach about, no, we're going to preach processes here. And we're going to preach about the things we have to accomplish to make our goals happen. So that when things don't go the right way, you can always come back to your core values, come back to your processes, and the kids know how what they have to do to improve. You know what I mean? So that 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 was big. So we talked about the relational components, the instilling the processes that our kids believe in, understand what work what hard work is gonna um lead to and really just God and and having coaches that truly, truly care about kids and are not just punching the clock, right? Because I mean I I I can't tell you any coach at Marshall that ever spring break I'm looking for, I'm looking to get away from these kids. I'm looking to get away from this place. Like that, that was never really in our mindset, right? We were always about building that. Yeah. And I wanted to find coaches who had that same passion, who were about building something. If you, you want to find coaches who can be change agents. And what I, what we, we found at Marshall was that we had the perfect storm in a group of men who were change agents. Yeah. So when I got to Side Springs, I wanted to find as many men who are change agents as possible, who are accustomed to getting the most out of whatever hand they're dealt. And that's that that was big for our coaching staff, getting those guys on board. And and now you talk about year one, it was establishing a culture. Okay. We're establishing a culture where it was about the process of everything that goes into winning, teaching our kids how to move. You know what I mean? How to move in the classroom, how to move off the field, how to move on the field. It, it was just, a, and then also that combined with the relational component, which, you know, went far beyond what they might've been used to in the past and having coaches that were, that they felt cared about what, what they were doing at night. You know what I mean? Like you might get a call at 10 o'clock, Hey coach, I'm in a bad situation. Can you help? You know, that that's the culture that we had to develop and build and make sure our families understand. And, Laid that foundation year one. Year two, which you call the second chop, was build on that first foundation, right? And we had a tremendous leader this year, our linebacker, Javon Jackson. Our defense, they, they played lights out this year for us. Um, we had a young offense that we were trying to develop and made some adjustments to the system to help them. But um, and, and, and we were able to get one game away. But unfortunately, you know, the last two games we played against um, – Bridgeland and Cy Woods and Bridgeland here. Yeah. And, 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 and I think where they got us was up front, in my opinion, you know, I felt like we're a year away as far as in the weight room and things of that nature. Yeah. You know, I mean, those COVID years caught up with us as far as, you know, so now we're just in the weight room trying to develop that, 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 that core strength we have so we can finish those type of games, you know, because uh, in order for us to take the next left the next step, we have to get in that weight room and really grind and, and, and get stronger. So, 
Yeah, you know, I I think, you know, so many times at coaching school or, or different clinics, you know, we're always listening to the co- championship winning coaches. And the thing I learned from my time at Aldine is like, there are some really good coaches out there that are going two and eight, one and nine, oh, and 10. I mean, Cirillo Hedda had an 0 and 10 season at Aldine this year. I watched them play. I love some of the stuff I'm seeing because I know all those kids know what they're doing. There's great personnel grouping, there's structure, you know what I mean? And so, I think a story like yours, you 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 have doubled the win total in these two. You know, from the when he took over was one win, then he went to two, now he went to four. I mean, you you've literally doubled the win total each year. This year, your signature victory was a thirty-eight to thirty thriller over Cy Falls, or my, my my favorite coach of all time, the offensive coordinator. You you lost by one point to Langham Creek. I mean, you were, I don't know. It just I think it's one of the more impressive turnarounds in the city in a really short period of time that people aren't talking about enough yet. And uh, I'm ahead of the curve, man. I'm, I'm saying it now that watch out for Cy Springs, but I think the rest of the you know the media will, will catch up on that pretty quick. But, you know, any any other thoughts on, on this? Oh, let me ask you. Actually, I want to ask you this question, Coach. For me, the best time in my coaching career was at being the defensive coordinator at Ridgepoint. All of us coaches, you know, we always aspire next thing. When we're assistants, we want to become a coordinator. When we're coordinator, we get that head coaching itch. I love being the head football coach at Aldine High School. I did not really in, relish being the athletic coordinator. You know, that that was not, ended up not being my forte. It wasn't where my strengths were best suited. It wasn't where I had the most fun because I found myself spending less time with the kids and more time handling various issues that would arise, you know, kind of unannounced. So I'm just curious for you because a lot of coaches listen to this, young coaches. I realized after two years, this was always my dream, but it's not for me that this athletic coordinator piece, like it's just, I, I'm not cut that way. Like my skills lie in other things. I'm curious for you, what advice would you give to young coaches? You know, they all want to be the head coach. They all, they're thinking about X's and O's, like you said, those X and O wars. But really, your job now, <laughs> so much more of it is not just X's and O's. It's yeah. managing other adults. And so can you yeah. talk to young coaches about that? Give give some advice for coaches that, that are applying for their first head coaching jobs now. What advice would you give? I think the first thing is understand that you're not applying to be the head football coach. Yeah, I think a lot of guys go into that head coach interview because they, they they're thinking about being a head football coach, right? right? So they they're answering questions and they and and they're focused on something that is just a small part of what the full job component is, right? Yep. So yep. understand that you're really your primary focus when you go to these interviews is that you're going to be the campus coordinator, right? So what's your vision? Not only what is your vision for the football team, but what is your vision for the for the campus as a whole? You know, what culture do you want that campus to have? All right. And then how do you, how, how are you going to go about building that? Okay. Um, and like you said, being a coordinator is truly the fun, the, the most fun you'll ever have. Right. Yeah. <laughs> when you become a head coach, you need to make sure that you're prepared to have coordinators that can handle your program while you're putting out the fires that you're going to have to put right. out as a head yes. coach. Yes. All right. And I think that's the biggest thing that people have to understand is like, yeah, you want to be a head coach, but you need to make sure you build a staff with individuals who can run the football component while you're putting out the the, the five million fires that are going to come at you right. from that coordinator position, right? Right, right. Because right. now you're dealing with the parent, the parent meeting for your soccer team, you know, meeting with your track co- track coach and and a, a track star and track parent who who's sure. gotten to a conflict. Yep. Um, yep. You, you you you're dealing with athletic trainers who had an issue with. I mean. It's just so many different things that come at you that you probably didn't expect. You right. know, what's going on in the right. school building, yep. you know, 
how's your how what, what what did your coach do that a teacher didn't like that you have to go and address address and so adult issues <laughs> you right. know yeah be, be prepared to handle the adult issues is going to come your way because a large part of your job is going to be managing and dealing with adults you know when you were when you were office coordinator your focus was managing kids and the offensive staff right when you were a defense coordinator it's the same way when you become a head coach your your responsibility is managing the adults Yes. Okay. That's right. Are you, ready, are you ready to manage the adults on campus? Because that's ultimately where your challenge is going to be put. And I think, I, I think young young coaches got to realize that, and they got to realize you got to do it when you when you're ready. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not. I I, I started looking at at jobs probably six or seven years into my time at Marshall, but I really wasn't pressed because I was enjoying being a coordinator for the first few years, right? And yeah. Then, once I thought, okay, it's time for me to, to 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 see if I could take this thing on the road and really take the culture that we have here at Marshall and go and impact some other young people someplace else. Uh, and, and, and I started looking, you know, but God had a plan where he, he kept me in place for another four or five years and we finished what we were doing at Marshall before it was time for me to transition to Side Springs. And it, I, I loved every moment that we spread at, spent at Marshall. And I'm loving, enjoying every moment that we, we're spending at Side Springs because I'm ready, but also because I had the right, right people around me. That's yeah. the key. That's the key. Before you become a head coach, identify who's going to go with you. You need yeah. to, right? Because yeah. I, I, yeah. I started looking around. I started seeing these coaches that had these certain ca- characteristics. You take over a program like Marshall or Side Springs at the time when I took over Side Springs, you better you better make sure you have some change agents with you, right? Right. You don't right. want to have a guy that's your friend that's he's a good football coach, but he doesn't really want to get into that relational component with kids. Sure. Not the right fit for yeah, that place. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You 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 got you have to really analyze what's best for the kid. You know, when I look at my staff, it's like how many X's and O's guys you're gonna need and how many guys you're gonna need that's gonna control the culture of your program behind the scenes and your weight room guy, your recruiting guy. You know, because one, you can't do everything. You got to have somebody with you yeah. that's going to be able to pick up this hat and pick up this hat. And I always talk to my guys about the three main components that you need to have, right? I got to have someone that's in there for my my player my player character development, right? My personal mm-hmm. player development, character-wise, that's off the field, on the field, all the character things that go into it. Then I have to have somebody there for my strength and conditioning, right? To make sure that everything is in place, to make sure that that piece is taken care of, right? Then... I have the player development, the strength development, and um, then the next piece is, you know, you got to have some idea that's going to help you with the recruiting component. For me at, at, at Side Springs, it's not only getting my seniors out, but our culture at this place has been so bad in the past, I have to go and sit down and recruit my own feeders, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, the kid is on to Side Springs, but we got to go, go sit down and do home visits and just right. like treat just right. like college and make yeah. sure those kids and those parents know what we have to offer. So, you have to look at all the different things that you're going to need to make sure that your program is going to be successful. No, man, love, love that answer, you know, and I think now as we kind of get towards the end of the show, man, I, again, I, I'm really excited for Side Springs football. You, one of the guys you mentioned is Zane Brown. He's a team player podcast alum. So if you want to check out episode number 33, all the listeners, you can hear Zane Brown's story. And man, you got a good one. He, he is an excellent. He's he special, is excellent. Man. Yeah, absolutely. I- I, I I think you I I I I think you ought to spend some time also with both Chris Wilson and Michael. The, those guys, yeah. man, I mean, they are incredible in their own rights. I I, I have not I, I have not been more luckier than to have those guys with me on this journey. And I'm 
I'm, I'm just going to enjoy the ride because I know at some point somebody's going to come calling and take one or two of them away from me. So, <laughs> because they're that good. So, yeah. um, but it, it's, it's, it's just a, it's just a, the biggest thing that you want to tell anyone that's going to step in the role is to really understand the culture of the place you're taking over. And when you're taking over a place like side Springs or Marshall at the time, understand that you need to make sure that your coaches are, are invested and they're not punching the clock. Right. All right. If you got guys that's punching the clock, these kids have issues that go beyond the eight hours you have in a day and the three hours you have on the field. You got to have guys that are going to be on the phone, that's going to be monitoring their internet actions, that's going to be on their group meeting, and just really seeing everything that's going on in their lives. Because one thing about this group, this generation, is they're very transparent. (laughs) You know, anything that's going on with them, they're going to post it and they're going to share it. (laughs) Right. so he, if you have people that are invested in them that are going to keep tabs on them, you're going to have people that's going to help to get them back. Because what happens is when they're with you, you're teaching them and you, they're protected. They're in this cocoon. And you, you're showing them how to move. You're teaching them the right thing. And when they walk away from you and when they leave your program and your presence, everything in their life is teaching them everything counter to things they need to be successful. Right. So you, you have to make sure that 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 cocoon that you have around them is that strong because it takes a while for them to completely buy in and transition and grow from where they at or the dysfunction that's normal to them to moving over to something that's a little bit foreign that's not cool that's not what everybody else in their social circle is doing sure. you know so you want to make sure you you have people that can foster that type of uh energy no, I mean, I love that. Chris Wilson, he's a Fort Bend Austin alum, just like I am. And I mean, I, I know of him. I don't know him very well personally. We've, we've met a couple of times, but I know he was with Coach Lazaro, who's another coaching, you know, inspiration of mine at Willow Ridge for many years. And so, yeah, so, so excited for y'all. I think it's going to be nothing but more success for the Panthers next season. I can't wait for that return trip to the playoffs. I know that's the ultimate goal, you know, yes. as, as we head forward. But let's just have a little bit of fun. Uh, actually, one more serious topic, then a little bit of fun. When I'm in the stands now as a broadcaster, and I do, I broadcast a lot of games. I'm, I'm there still three nights a week, just like his coach, and I'm always out at these stadiums. I see some negative stuff sometimes. You know, I see angry, upset people, whether they're yelling, complaining about coaches or yelling at officials or just, I hate that kind of energy, man. Cause I've, I've already talked about my personal background and having some problems at home. Like coach, coaches save my life. And so I think that this is everything about high school athletics is beautiful. It should be protected. There's no reason for us to be getting upset and getting into fights and yelling and this kind of stuff at, at football games so or basketball or whatever it is. So I'm just curious for you. You've been around the game for a long time. You're a parent. W- what advice would you give to parents? Because I, I always will say whenever you're being negative like that, that's not that's not what's best for your kid. You know, you think you're trying to help your kid, but that's not what's going to make their experience better. So I'm, I'm, my question is for any parents that listen, what advice would you give to help your child have the best possible athletic experience? I just, I, I really feel like it works the best when it's a marriage between parents and coaches, right? Yes. You have to be married to the program. You, I think parents all were, are, rightfully so, they all care about their their individual kids, right? Right. But at the at the, at the end of the day, you have to realize your individual kid is going to benefit one way or another from that program. And I always tell my guys something about being a part of a team, right? It's like. Well, whose team is this? It's it's our team, right? Mm-hmm. So if this is our team and you talk bad about our team and you are a part of this team, all right, and you're talking bad about this team, well, who are you talking bad about? Well, me, all right? So you're hurting yourself. So I want the parents to understand that that's 
whether you like him or like the coach or like the players or like at the end of the day, that's the team that your child is on, right? So when you're when you're breaking down that team and you're you're, you're talking derogatory about that team or that coach, and then your child has to go back to that coach or back to that be a part of that team and perform at its highest level, that's not going to happen right. because right. you already filled that individual with some negative feelings towards right. the process. Yeah. 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 Now, I'm not saying you can't be displeased. And you can't vocalize that, but it's easy to set a meeting with a coach and sit yeah. down and say, hey, coach, I saw this. I, I just need some clarification on this. Right. This is what I saw. This is how I feel. Can you can you explain it to me? You know what I mean? And then we can move forward. But it's like your parent, right? The coaches, what, what parents understand sometimes, just coaching and parents got to be a marriage just like your marriage has to be a marriage right yep. mom can't talk bad about dad in front of the kid and think the kid's right. gonna respect dad yeah dad right. can't talk bad about mom in front of the kid and think the kid's gonna respect mom so when you're talking bad and beating down these coaches in front of your child and then you sent the child back to practice so that he could excel and be ready to play so he can achieve what you think he's gonna achieve guess what's gonna happen <laughs> yeah same, that, same that thing. is spot on that i love that I, i've never actually heard it put like that but you're you so know? right it's a marriage. It's, it's I, I, I'm the extension of you when your child is in our building, when your child's under our care. We're trying to help that young man grow to the best of his potential. That's it. We're, we're trying to help him. You know what I mean? You may not agree with how we do it. You may not agree with what we did. Oh, but that's what we're trying to do. And ultimately, as a coach, these are all my kids. And you're only worried about one. So every decision I make is driven by what's best for the totality of the group because right. they're all mine. And, and that's the one difference that parents understand sometimes is like, well, I can't talk bad about him because he's my he's my child. Are you gonna talk bad about your child? No. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. don't so when they come to my office and they want to talk bad about somebody else's child, well, that that's not gonna happen because yeah. guess what? Yeah. Yeah. That's my child you're talking about. So I you know, it, it, he may he may yeah. have some flaws, but we're not gonna sit down here and do that. Just like I'm not gonna sit down here and let somebody talk about your child. Love it. Yep. That's you know? man, that's good stuff, coach. I love that. I've never heard it put like that about how I never thought about it. Like, yeah, you're sabotaging your kid's chances. If you're putting in his head that coach sucks or he, you think he's going to respect that coach and, and, and achieve, you know? So like, I, I'm with you, man. That, that is, that is spot on. But last thing, this has been a great episode, man. Last thing I got to ask you, I got two questions for you. you know, I'm wearing my, my Jesse Armstead, uh, New York Giants jersey here because you said you you said you actually kind of like the Oilers growing up in New York City. So I, I really I like that. You 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 like the Columbia blue, that baby blue that we had back in the day. But I did. I was an Oilers did. fan. They used to crack. They used to all make fun of me, man. But that you know me growing up, warm wounds, African American quarterback, yes, and yes. he threw the heck out the football. They were exciting offense. So I just remembered you know Low White, Haywood Jeffries, mm -hmm. Curtis Duncan. I remember all those guys, man. It was exciting offense to watch. I, I remember crying and, and and finding a place to hide after we we lost the game to Buffalo Bills. Oh my god! I remember I remember yeah. the phone calls I got from my friends ridiculing me and <laughs> cracking jokes, and I, I remember those days. <laughs> well, let me ask you. So I'm going to ask you to do a Mount Rushmore, which is you know your top four all time favorites. So I I believe you're a certified Oilers fan, so you don't have to do all Giants. Or do you want to do Oilers or do you want to do Giants or or both? I, I mean. mean I could do both. Who are your top four favorite? What's, what's your like? What is the what is the OG Fagan like Mount Rushmore of, of football? Who are your four favorite? Your personal four favorites? Right, Giants so or Oilers? If I if I went with Giants, 
LT is my number one favorite, oh, yeah. right? Yep. All right. LT is my number one favorite. Um, I would say Phil Sims was an unbelievable leader, quarterback for the Giants for years. Mark Rivaro, that tight end, he's probably uh, yes. he was uh, people don't talk about him much when they talk about the tight ends of the but if that guy played in some of these offenses they had this today, yes. oh my god, it would be ridiculous. Yes. All right. He was he, he he was truly special. Um and then I would say Michael Strahan can't yep. can't leave him out when you talk about the Giants. Can't do Westbury High School, Westbury High School here in Houston. <laughs> can't can't do a Mount Rushmore with for the Giants and not have um Michael Strahan in there. That that you you'd be remiss, you know. When you, when you, when you think about the Oilers, I would say I already said um my guy um Warren Moon. Then I would say Earl Campbell. Mm-hmm. Uh, none greater and then Eddie George, he was truly special, uh, yes, he right? Was. And uh, I mean, there's so many for my fourth, it's so hard. I would say, hmm, see, I can't, I can't put Veneer in there because he, I think he was more of a, a Tennessee Titan than he was a Houston Oilers. <laughs> you know, what, what was the last one you said? Steve McNair, I think. Oh, McNair, yeah, well, yeah. We had him for a very short period. Yeah, I think he was more. Yeah, Mm-mm. can't put him in there. But I, um, I would say Bruce Matthews, the tackle. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah, he can't. Yeah, I mean, he was special. So I'll say those four right there. Last question I have for you. We'll just do. We're just gonna do the the old goat debate, and I'm just talking quarterbacks here. Everybody likes to fight about who is the greatest quarterback of all time. You are obviously one of the most gifted offensive minds here in the Houston area. I know from experience. You tell me. You know offense way better than I do. Just talk. Who would you say is the greatest quarterback of all time? And you all can right. you can give me a couple. You can throw out a couple of names, but I, I do want you to narrow it down to one that you think is the best. So you have to start with Marina and Montana. No, Montana. No, Montana and Brady. Um, Brady. Montana and Brady. They, okay. they have the, they have the rings to back it up, right? Um, they played in different eras. And but Montana, man, the thing about Montana was his ability to to win when the chips was like against him. Like he he win he performed in all the biggest moments, man. That yeah. guy, yeah. those four Super Bowls. I mean, that guy was special, you know. But Brady, that longevity, you can't you can't trade that for anything. Um, I, I say yeah, and and then I you know my favorite quarterback of all time was Dan Marino. Uh, he has no he has none of the rings. Right. Watching that guy play and throw the football, man, it was entertaining. Like you can't, you can't. So I would say to go between Brady and Montana, that is a tough one because it's just two different eras. Yeah, How do that's, you do it, that? it's hard to compare eras. I, I totally like when people like to debate LeBron and MJ. I mean, it's like it's different eras. You, you know? know, but Montana, man, I just remember growing up and watching him play and just knowing that. If he had the ball lost last, you were gonna win. You know what I mean? It was just, right. you know. But Brady, he won some of the, some of his own. You know, I guess I go. Hmm. I guess I, I got to go with Brady because of longevity. Yeah. You know, because uh, Montana had a couple of injuries, the back injury at the end of his career, those type of things. I have to go with Brady. I'm with you, coach. That's the way that I go. I, I'm Brady all the way, but I understand, you know, there, there is no right answer. There's so many great players play this great I game, mean, but there's so many, man. Yeah. You know, I'm like, my goodness, what a game. 
What a game, man. And what a show this was, man. If, if y'all enjoyed this as much as I did, please take a moment. Give us that five-star rating. That drives us up the charts so more people can hear these stories of coaches making a difference. Hit that follow button to subscribe, and you'll hear a new episode as soon as they come out each week. You can follow me on Twitter at Coach underscore Kovo. That's Coach underscore K-O-V-O. You can hit us up at teamplayerpodcast at gmail.com if you have any recommendations. Like we, We're all we're just building a network here. A lot of these are just friends of mine or people that are recommended to me. So please let us know what you think. As always, the cover art and music for the Team Player Podcast are provided by two of my former players. The cover art is by Kaiser St. Cyr. That was my sophomore defensive end that had to go against Mo Porter. So if you remember <laughs> that film, that's Kaiser St. Cyr, number 90. My defensive end. I remember. End. I remember. remember Kaiser. Yeah, we call him Dre. He is an excellent artist. So he drew my cover art. But but Dre had a rough <laughs> night that night. That wasn't fair. <laughs> when he had to go against Mo Porter that night as a sophomore. But, yeah, uh, and then our intro and exit mu- music is one more good enough from Avrion's self-titled debut album. He was a cornerback for us at Clements High School. And you can find his music on all platforms by searching for Avrion. That's A-V-R-I-O-N. Coach OG mm-hmm. Fagan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, thank you for having me, Coach. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you for all the team players out there for your support. And we'll catch y'all down the road. It always feel like I need one more bar and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head, lost my mind, and sharing them. I'm just fine. I'm good enough, but I need one more bar and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head, lost my mind, and sharing them. I'm just fine. I'm good enough, but I need one more bar and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head. Lost my mind, insuring them, I'm just fine, I'm good enough But you be told I need some therapy, initially ain't do it voluntarily But now I got a legacy, 